So welcome everybody. We are here, Deeper Groove, 885 FM, at home interviews that we have the legendary musician and producer, songwriter, Gabe Roth. We're sitting right now in Pimrose Recorders, home of Pimrose Records, and he's gonna talk about his legendary fame with, with Daptone. Super excited to have you, Gabe. Great, on the podcast I, I appreciate today. you having me. Thanks for coming all the way out here as a drive. No, I appreciate it. Just getting to talk to you as a fan and as a musician, I'm, I'm super excited to get into it. So as we start, I wanted to chat with you first mm -hmm. about the origins, starting with uh, Desco, that was the predecessor mm -hmm. to Daptone, and then now Pembrose. What made you want to co-found indie record labels? Did you see a gap in the marketplace, or was it just like, I think this music is dope, I want to put it out? Man, it's almost the opposite. I definitely had never said I want to have an independent record label. It was more like, I, I started making records, I was, you know, in college, you know, and I, I was young, and I met a guy, uh, Philip Lehman, and he had a record label, and we were just, we were just doing it for fun, you know what I mean? And and uh, I never thought I was going to make a living from it, and I remember being at NYU and knowing kids that were in these, like, um, internship programs and stuff at Sony Records, and trying to, like, learn the ropes and stuff, and I was thinking, like, man, why would you, what do you, why would you even study that? Like, why would you even want to be involved in that? Like, I had no desire to be involved in it. So I kind of did it. It kind of came by accident. We started making records, and people started buying them. And the next thing I knew, we had a record label, you know? And um, and then when when Desco shut down around 2000, my partner and I kind of parted ways, and that shut down. Neil Sugarman, who was playing in the Sugarman Three, saxophonist and good friend of mine, um, I produced his records on Desco, and he really liked being part of a label like that where there was like a family of people and it was like, um, you know, the label had a sound and a look and stuff. So he was really into it. So he wanted to start another label and I really didn't want to do it. I was really just burnt on the business side of it. And he said that, he, he came to me and he said, man, if you, you know, basically you make the records and I'll sell them. Like, I'll figure it out. Let's, let's do it together. And uh, yeah, it's been great ever since we got, you know, we've been, we were very lucky but even through all that, we we always stay focused on just trying to make cool records. So that was really the cause behind all of it. No, we never really cared about you know the market. You know, we definitely care about our fans and stuff. But of you know, the way we respect them is to respect ourselves. If we make music we love, and don't try to chase anything, you know, people will respond to that. And if they don't, that's okay too. You know, but you know, as long as as long as they're doing it, they will keep making them. You know. Yeah. And so many people did respond and resonate to that. It's kind of like a Harlem Renaissance, but really a Brooklyn Renaissance during mm -hmm. that time. And there were so many other funk labels, but Daptone definitely shined in the cream rose to the top from the fray. Why do you think that is? What synergy or what things kind of aligned that came together to make that happen? I mean, I think there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ways to look at it, but the truth is for me is I think it was those particular people. You know, I mean, I think it was Neil Sugarman, Homer Steinway, Binky Griptite, Martin Perna, like all the people that were in all these groups, you know, um, Nick Mobshon, Sharon Jones, like all these, all the people that were around, you know, Sandra Williams, it was just who those people were. And, you know, that, you know, how the universe put them in the same place at the same time that, you know, somebody, I'll let somebody else wonder about that. But I would say that those people, if they were in, you know, Cleveland or Riverside or wherever those people were, if they were making music, this was going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, and I think Brooklyn was definitely a part of the story and like a, a voice in that and definitely part of the context and perspective and attitude 
of the beginning of the labels and stuff too. But honestly, I think if you think about anything other than the people that we're doing, if you replace any of those people with other people, then there wouldn't have been anything there. So it was really about the musicians, you know, the whole time. And, and even the people in the office, Nydia, Mikey, the people that from, you know, from very early on really understood and loved and cared for and, you know, nursed this label, like, and, and fought to keep it, just right, you know, and thought about, no, that record's not good enough, and, you know, that, that to me, I think, is, is where the strength of all of it came from, you know. And you were telling me earlier that it was really a family affair, putting mm -hmm. the Daptone, the, the house that Daptone built with Sharon Jones helping with electricity, and Charles mm -hmm. Bradley helping with, with drywall, other things, mm -hmm. like how, and, and the other bands, how, how did that kind of come together as a, as a family project to be able to create the, the inner workings of Daptone from I, the recording studio. I mean, I, I think it, it's all, you know, naturally. It was, it was um, I mean, a lot of people that enjoyed being with each other and spent time with each other and started touring with each other and sharing bands together and hearing each other's jokes and smelling each other and listening to the same mixtapes, you know, you, you become family that way, you know. And I think there's a lot of mutual respect for each other and respect for what we're trying to do. And I think, you know, People, people bought into it because it was, it was, uh, or it is, it's something real, you know. It's something where it's a high standard, and it's it, it's based on very high respect for the music and the musicians and 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 the craft of it. And I think everybody is happy to be part of it, you know, and proud to be part of it, you know. So I think that's that's just kind of where that came from. It was pretty natural, you know. It was definitely, I think. I have often gotten more, much more credit than I deserve as far as I think people thought, I'm, how did you, you know, you pulled all these people together like I masterminded some shit. It's like, no, we just, you know, we were just, you know, trying to make cool records and, you know, cool people started hanging out and it just happened that way. You know, I think it was, you know, to take any credit away from all the, all the people that actually made everything I think would be wrong, you know. For sure. Now you do a lot of different things. You're a multi-instrumentalist, band member, band leader. And you actually, from what I'm told, have different pseudonyms or monikers for different things that you're doing. So uh -oh. you have Bill Ravi Harris, Mike Jackson, Clement Apicacci, wow, and Bosco Man. Yeah. So is that... Also, there's also... Uh, well, I shouldn't give you those, but there's, there's some other ones too. <laughs> so is that like different personalities or I mean, different it start, hats? It started, out, it started out actually because when I first started making records, I owed a lot of money. I owed a lot of money... On credit cards that I couldn't pay, right. I owed money uh, on student loans that I couldn't pay, mm -hmm. I owed money to everybody I knew. I was broke, you know? And I was afraid that if I put my real name on a record, that that was, maybe I'm wrong, but for some reason I thought that would meant somebody was going to come after me, you know what I mean? So I didn't want to put my real name on the record. And the first couple of records I made was with this, this, this dude, great guitar player, a guy named Scott Mann. So I was like, oh, it'd be cool if it sounded like there's brothers in the you know, rhythm section. So I took his last name, Mann. And then Bosco was, my dad wanted to name me Bosco because uh, he wanted to name me Hieronymus after Hieronymus Bosch, the, the painter, wow. who they used to call Il Bosco. So he wanted to name me Hieronymus, call me Bosco. And my mother had the good sense to, you know, slap the joint out of his mouth and <laughs> name me something less screwy. That, that's where that name came from. But I, yeah, I, I think a lot of those early records also, we were messing around a lot. We would make fake records and well they weren't fake records they were real records was the point of it mm -hmm. but we would um package them and present them like things that they weren't and i think it's weird the perspective on that at the t now because at the time that made sense at the time nobody was buying 
people that were really into like funk and soul, people that were into like James Brown and stuff, mm-hmm. they weren't buying new records because it was a different sound. Like new bands, some of the bands were really good. Like I was into some of those bands, but it was a different sound. Like, you know, the brand new heavies or like Jamiroquai mm-hmm. or Brooklyn Funk Essentials or any of those kind of bands. Like that wasn't what we were trying to do. We were on some real raw 60s kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like not, we weren't trying to be cute about it, you know? So people, when we went around with and said, hey, we got a new record, nobody was trying to buy it. In fact, I was just talking about this the other day. The first Lee Fields single we did um, was Lee Fields and Soul Providers on Desco. And uh, we, I was so proud of it. It was such a cool record. And we went around like we used to do. We'd go to just drive around the record stores, drive around the record stores in New York, Philly, sometimes Boston, but usually Philly and New York and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we just go into the record stores and try to sell records, you know. And I'd go in there with a box, a box of them. I had like, I don't know, 200, 300 we pressed. And I was trying to sell them for like $3.00. And nobody would buy them. I couldn't sell them. Nobody was interested in them, you know? Like, eh, whatever. And then Philip, my partner, who was crazy and, you know, amazing, just a really eccentric dude, he got newspaper and he rubbed the labels and scratched them on the floor. So he actually scratched them up. I mean, they were new records at the plant. He scratched them, got them to about VG barely, you know? And would go with one of them to a record store and play it for him and sell it to him for like 50 bucks, 75 bucks, because they thought it was an old record. You know, so that, I think... Trying to sell records for a while at that time, it gave us this awareness that like, if we try to sell new records, nobody wants to listen to them. And I couldn't even blame them because I was the same way. If somebody's like, hey, want to hear my funk band? I'd be like, no, I don't hear a stupid funk band. You know what I mean? Like, it's going to be terrible, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so our first record that we put out, the first album I did was Revenge of Mr. Apology, which is like this fake soundtrack. And we put it out, and everybody was saying, record store owners would buy it, and they'd say, oh, I got the original at home. Oh, good, yeah, I'd love to see it. Oh, my cousin's got the movie on VHS. You know, they would, everybody, it was crazy. Like, we, we thought we were going to have to bullshit people, but really, they were bullshitting us. Like, it, it, it you know, people loved that story, you know. And it were easy to sell, so we sold, like, five, 6,000 of them, which was a lot of records back then. Like, for sure. For us, it was, like, crazy, you know. And then we said, okay, well, now, you know, we're going to do the big reveal, and we did another record, by the soul providers, this time not just instrumental, but with Sharon Jones and Lee Fields on it. And um, we, 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 tried, we told everybody, hey, this is new, this is us, check out our new record. And we could not give the thing away, probably sold 50 copies, hmm. you know what I mean? So it was like, and my partner was crazy, so he was like, all right, you know, screw them then, let's just let's keep doing that. So we did, you know, Nino Nardini and The Other Side and, and all these other records, the Doctors, all these records, and we would just, you know, pretend they're old records, they would sell like hotcakes, you know, so it was kind of strange. Yeah, it's interesting how you have to kind of create that marketing story beyond yeah. the... But it's what people wanted. That was the weird part, I think. Now people don't understand that as much, because now it's like, well, why are you messing with people? But it's like, man, they were messing with me. They didn't want to hear what we were doing. You know, they only wanted to buy old music. So we said, okay, it's old music. Now you want it? Be like, yeah, it's great now. And like, okay. Yeah. So it was weird because now I think there's a context for, for that. You know, but then there wasn't then. You know, in the '90s. It's definitely nostalgic music, but for sure. Now, speaking of that nostalgia, I think you know some of your most uh, explosive success around that time, the early 2000s, was with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, and you guys went from you know being. New York known and obviously the amazing mm-hmm. review live you did at, at the Apollo mm-hmm. and then in, being internationally known and doing sure. a ton of tours and festivals and conferences yeah. and so when you were creating that eventually it led to the Grammy nomination too for mm-hmm. Give the People What sure. They Want like how did it feel to kind of build into that recognizable man I'm still, real, I'm still real proud of that because I, I feel like um, 
you know, I think from the outside, a lot of people will look at different moments and think, oh, you guys blew up or this, happened. and that band never blew up. We never had a radio hit. Mm -hmm. We never really had any huge thing that jumped us up. You know, people think, oh, well, when, after you backed up Amy Winehouse, but we weren't getting calls because of that. I think in the industry, we're getting a lot of respect as a band after that. But um, as far as the band, it was like, I don't think a lot of people in the general public made that connection between, you know, the band backing in Winehouse and backing Sharon. Um, like fresh air and stuff like that was big for us, you know, but we never really had that. It was always very gradual, right. you know, so I was real proud of that. I mean, we would go to a town and we would play for 40 or 50 people and Sharon would sing our heart out and we would sweat and play as hard as we could and put all our hearts and souls into it. And next time we came back, those people would tell their friends or their cousins and they'd be back and then there'd be 80 people and then 150 and then 200 and 300. Eventually we were going to towns and, you know, we could go play in Paris for a few thousand people or something, you know, and it was... It was pretty amazing, but it definitely was not overnight. And I think Sharon never had the advantage of um, those that kind of super pop hit or something. It just wasn't who she was, you know. And there were definitely times we were working on records where management or somebody would be like, well, is there a song here that has like that kind of... We're just like, no, there really isn't that kind of song, you know. But people dig it, you know, so we're going to keep doing it, you know. So it was very gradual, but it was, you know, from the inside, it... it there wasn't a lot of surprises in there. I mean, we were playing, we were working. You know, we were, the band was touring so hard and, you know, just playing our hearts out every night for years and years and years and still in the back of a van, you know, before we got to finally get to buses and, you know, it, you know, and get, it got kind of big. But it was never like this, you know, so. Right. No, it definitely was, it was a, a grind. kind of a, a boil, but people knew yeah. you and then it slowly grew. And I, I know you guys back to Desky Trucks and, and worked yeah, together yeah, there in Hollywood Bowl. And I saw you in the early 2000s at Amoeba Records and everybody was so nice and came oh, yeah. out and Sharon hugged me and everything. It was just cool to see like you guys were always... Amoeba in LA? In LA, yes. You guys were always who you were, yeah. you know? So it was like there was no yeah. airs about your group. Yeah, Sharon, Sharon I mean Sharon was our, our, you know, matriarch, our leader, our queen, man. And, and Sharon was always, like she didn't know how not to be real, you know? She, she was always real and she when she came on stage it was always you know, come from heart, when, and when you couldn't do it, it wouldn't be done, you know what I mean? And it was, you know, so she definitely inspired us. We were, like, just soldiers behind her, you know, that whole time, you know. But, yeah, there was never, in our whole circle, there was never much tolerance for um, putting on airs or mm -hmm. bullshit, really, you know, in the music or otherwise. Like, everybody was, I think there was a lot of uh, respect for just being genuine. And, and all, even in the musicianship, I think there was never a lot of room for virtuosity, because we have a lot of incredible musicians that could have played a lot more notes. I mean, you know, Binky and Dave Guy and some of these guys are really amazing on their instruments, but they were always in, they weren't the type of people to try to play more notes. They were the people to try to be like, you know, what can I do in this moment to hook this pocket up, to hook this song up, you know, and blat, you know, just like a real good, just concentrate on the, you know, getting together with your brothers right there and getting the three horns just blat, you know, like that to me, that's what the band was always about, like finding that resonance and that rhythm where everybody's vibrating together and just hitting stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that was what people would respond to, you know, the, the rhythm and the, the sound of the band and Sharon's energy, it was all, it was, it was a good time, man. Yeah, and you see that. the extension of that too when you look at groups like Song and Star. I saw them mm -hmm. opening for Jungle Fire and La Cita in downtown. Oh yeah, that was fun yeah. show. I remember that show. Yeah, it was like literally like right after the Hollywood Bowl, like everyone yeah. went over yeah, there. Yeah, we were just looking at something to do like right after that's right. Yeah, the after party. That was and cool. Yeah, so you did mention it as well about the success with Amy Winehouse and mm -hmm. Back to Black. Now when you were doing that and obviously that was a Grammy win for you, mm -hmm. such a monumental album and record, obviously she won like five, six Grammys that night. Mm -hmm. 
When you were making that, though, off her success with Mark Ronson and Valerie before that mm. on the Frank album, did you guys at the Dap Kings realize how big that was going to become when you're making that? Or are you just like, hey, this is just... No, I mean, when Mark Ronson came to me and talked to me about doing it, and he was saying, man, I think this, I think she could win like a Brit Award. I think this could be a big record and stuff like that. And, um, you know, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't have... The thing is, we've done a lot of things where we thought they were going to be small and they were big. And then we've done a lot of things where we thought they were going to be big and they're small. Mm -hmm. And really, is if, if you're getting hired on stuff like that, like to me at least, I don't, I don't lose sleep over one way or the other. I feel like, you know, that's, your, that's their record and, and I'm happy to be, you know, part of their toolbox on that kind of stuff. But, mm -hmm. it's, you know, we weren't, I didn't personally feel invested of it on that level, you know, where it's, you know, this is too big, I got ripped off or anything like that. I think there was, you know, but, she, you know, working with her was cool. She was, she was, uh, real musical and she was real nice, you know. And Mark Ronson's great to work with. He's a great producer and and um, he always had a good way of working with the Dap Kings and then later Manhattan Street Band and stuff because mm -hmm. he understood what what we did and what we brought to the table and didn't try to. Um, he was good at kind of being able to to use that and kind of you know bring his pop sensibility and connections and and you know sound to it, but without. Um, Without ruining the vibe, you know, without, he, he would let us play, you know, he let us play it the way we want to play it, and, you know, and, and he would have, when he had, you know, sometimes he wouldn't say anything, but when he would say something, it'd be, something made sense, oh, what if you don't play the hi-hat on the verse, he'd say stuff like that, you know, oh, that'd be cool, you know, or try it a little faster, things you could actually do. I've worked with a lot of other producers that, that don't understand the way that, you know, the idea of people in the room together making music, which mm -hmm. is, which is crazy nowadays that it's such a strange thing and people are always surprised by that that like you're making records with a bunch of musicians in a room together at the same time like as if that's a novel thing you know like, to me the weird thing should be like not doing that like you know that would should be the exception you know but anyway um yeah the amy winehouse stuff was was nice it was it was nice to to work with her and and um tour with her a little bit not very much but um yeah it definitely opened for a lot of doors for us in the music industry like i think there's a lot of uh, you know, we got a lot of other work out of that. Right. You know, probably still do. Sure. You know? And the thing is, is that your group, the Dow Keys, was always dope, essentially, with the Rex with Sharon and, and mm. beyond. And uh, it's really just that album allowed other people to discover the Dap Kings through sure. a different medium, but yeah. it didn't mean you became more dope because you're making that record versus yeah. other ones. No. You're always trying to do your yeah, best. Yeah, and, and to be honest, like, from my perspective, too, it's like we made a lot of records that I... I um, I really worked so hard on for months and months, and mm -hmm. you know, dealt with every note and every sound, and really took my time and really hooked them up. You know, even that Sonic Star record, I love that record. Put a lot of that record, and you know, people people don't hear it sometimes, you know. And the Amy Winehouse record, like, we had worked on that for a handful of days. You know, mm -hmm. I probably put four days into that record or something, maybe five. I don't know. We didn't spend a lot of time working on it. You know, I know Mark Mark probably did. And, and, you know, maybe Amy did, but, sure. you know, for us, it, it, it was a session, you know, they came right. in, here's the songs, we worked out an arrangement, we cut it, you know, got some sounds, you know. So. That's cool. And so then, if we pivot from there, speaking of Grammys again, you won second Grammy working with the legendary Booker T from Booker T and the MG's pop instrumental Grammy for The Road from Memphis. Right. And so I see a lot of parallels between Dap Tone and the Dap King being kind of like a house band unit. And a Booker T and the MG sure. Green Onion Stacks yeah. unit, and so when you were approaching that record, you had so many guests on there too. Yeah. Like, what were you thinking during that process? Well, it's funny you say it because well, I mean, firstly, yeah, and we're obviously I idolize those dudes, man, for all the records that, that they made and the, the way they made them, and the craft that they, you know, 
like the craftsmanship, the, the way they put those records together is amazing, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, as, as, as far as, as, as going into that record, the producer on there um, came to me and he said that he wanted to do this record with The Roots and, and um, Booker T and he wanted to do it like an MG's record. Like mm -hmm. he wanted to be stripped down and all about just the melodies and just, uh, you know, and one set, he basically talked to me about doing it so it was one set of sound. It was just one sound for the whole record and just one thing and just simple and stripped down. And I was like, man, I'm down to do that. That sounds cool, mm -hmm. you know. So then of course, cut to the, cut to the studio session and I got Amir from The Roots who's mm -hmm. like every, you know, he's like, he was real happy. I mean, he's cool. He's a cool guy. I worked with him on a bunch of times. Great guy. But he was like, he was like a kid in the candy store. Because he, he was like, man, I've always wanted to, you know, you'd record my drums. Like, so every song he'd be like, okay, this song I want to sound like James Black from New Orleans, and this song I want to sound like, you know, um, Ben Dixon. This song I want to sound like. Every song had a different drummer, a different sound, a whole different reference. So I had to get new sounds for like every song. And then the producer started bringing in all of the, you know. Oh, now I'm gonna have the guy from the National, and the next day I'm gonna have Lou Reed here, and the next day it's um, Biz Marquis gonna be. I'm like Biz Marquis, like what, what? What are we doing? You know what I mean? Like I couldn't figure out what was going on. It was like so. It was kind of crazy. So it's funny when you, when you look at it that way because I thought I was getting into something that was like really like one of those old Booker T albums where it's just stripped down and just him playing melodies and stuff. And he, but I'll tell you this, man, he plays so beautifully even mm -hmm. on that record, man. He sounds good as they always do. He just has such a voice, you know, and such a restraint, man. Very, very amazing musician to me, you know. Yeah, he's so well seasoned by that, yeah. I guess, the second act of, yeah. of his life, but uh, a monumental record. So now, you've worked as a soul funk producer and a multi-instrumentalist, mm -hmm. playing with the Dap Kings, and a songwriter as well. You've done a ton of songs under a bunch of different names. Is there any kind of one hat or one bag you kind of operate from? Do you prefer one thing over another? Or just depends? Uh, I like playing tambourine a lot. <laughs> Uh, I'm not the best tambourine player, but I'm a good tambourine player. Nice. So, uh, you know, if Saunders around or when Sharon was around, I was definitely not trying to pick up a tambourine. <laughs> Those guys are, you know, way above me. Of course. But a lot of times around here, sometimes I'm the best tambourine player in the room, which is nice. So I get to play the tambourine. So I like that. That's probably my favorite thing to do. That's cool. But um, I like all of it, man. I think all, you know, I'm I'm very grateful that I've been able to to make a living doing this stuff, man. You know, like. Writing music is, is is fun, and it's definitely, like, um, it's nice for me because I, I realize, especially, like, right now, I'm, I'm working on the stuff with Lee Fields, who's been, you know, my favorite singer for, you know, 30, okay. 30 years for or something, sure. you know? And um, I have songs, some of the songs I'm working on with him is stuff that I wrote 20 years ago that I've just been waiting for him, you know? So I'm real excited about it. But I realize working with him that it's, like, as far as writing songs, like, I have... I have, you know, I have feelings too, you know, like I'm in some ways a passionate person, you know, like we all are, we're all, you know, yeah. human beings with feelings, and to, to me it's about expressing things in songs, you know, mm -hmm. but I'm not an expressive person like that, man, I'm a dry dude, you know what I mean, like I can tell you a joke, you know what I mean, I can, I can fix something, I can explain something to you, but I'm not the guy who can, you know, if I open my mouth and try to sing about how much I love you, it's not going to be pleasant for anybody, you know, so, but I can write these songs that were real true to my heart, shit I was going through, you know, in my life, or things that people I know were going through, like, very real songs for me that really have feelings in my heart that I can't, I can't even speak them out loud, but when Lee opens his mouth and sings them, like, somehow, it just, he just breathes this, breathes this uh, realness to these things, man, mm -hmm. like this feeling, you know, and, uh, 
and I feel like that, I, you know, that to me is what hooked me on. I don't want to say, I mean, the thing is songwriting makes it sound higher than it is, because I'm, I'm I don't think I'm a great songwriter. I think I've been, I think I'm good at, at like, the architecture of it. You know, I, make, I can make things rhyme and stuff, but I know a lot of people write songs that are way more creative-inspired than mine. My stuff's a little formulaic, but I've had these great singers that I've worked with, you know, like Lee and like Sharon and, sure. and Naomi Shelton Davis, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and um, you know, I, I think, like, being able to write for somebody like that it's not about trying to show somebody the song. It's about like letting them tell the story, let them tell the feeling. And when they can tap into it, it's just like I don't know. It's a high. It's definitely rewarding. For sure, yeah. They're so yeah. earnest. The type yeah. of thing that they do, and it's like a paintbrush that yeah. just washes over the records. But honestly, the highest thing for me has always been being on stage behind Sharon. That was crazy. That was insane. You know, I was. I feel really very grateful for you know having all the years I had on stage with her. Man, that was. I don't think I'll ever, you know be as high musically as that again you know like I think that was untouchable it was really like another realm of of feeling and rhythm and stuff when she was on stage man so you know that to me it's like probably I mean you say favorite hat it's hard to say you know definitely not like running a record label it's not that cool you know (laughs) I mean it's cool to you know but it's not that cool it's like it's like any other business and the record label business is hard you know but um, we have really, really good people. You know, my partner Neil is is great at it now. As much as he always still tries to play that caveman card, like, well, I'm just a saxophone player. I don't know about your complicated. It's like, dude, you know, you basically run a, a successful international company now for like 25 years or something. So like, you know what you're doing. But like I said, Nydia and Mikey and and now Nick and and Andy, everybody at the label, man, they're they they're great at it. And they know what they're doing. So I don't have to wear that hat that much. I just get on the phone sometimes and complain about, oh, no, this should have been red instead of green. And they, you know, they do all the hard stuff. You know. That is cool to have yeah. that kind of team. We have a great team. Up. We have a great team. Yeah. Uh, so you're an outspoken proponent of analog recording in mm-hmm. both of your studios at Pembroke and at Daptone. And so uh, you were once said, show me a computer that sounds as good as a tape machine and I'll mm-hmm. use it. And yeah. So is that really true for you that you use it that way? Well, I, I, I mean, I think I was talking about this a little bit before, mm-hmm. before we started here. Is that I, I, I'm actually not as dogmatic as I think a lot of people think is about tape and computers and stuff. I just think, for me personally, it's the tool that, that works the best, you know? <clears throat> it's what I enjoy using, and I really enjoy... I mean, the sound of it is is cool, uh, but like I was telling these guys, I think the sound is, is a very small part of it. Like, the much bigger part to me is the process. Mm-hmm. And I think when I have eight tracks of tape, the process of trying to make a record forces not just me, but the musicians and whoever wrote it, whoever's doing the arrangement, whoever's the engineer, forces everybody working on the record to work harder and do a better job. When you have a computer, you can just endlessly put a bunch of crap down, and then they're counting on some engineer or producer later to kind of make a record out of it, you know? With the tape machine, especially as you start bringing the, ta- the track count down, it just forces you to be in the moment and to make you know, to make a record, to make a recording of something that's happening, at least, you know, and to me, that's what I love about music, you know, um, I think it's nice sometimes, too, like, there's certain, you know, lots of things you can do with a computer you can never do with a tape machine, and people who want to do those things should use computers, I don't, I don't have any problem with it, it's not right. like that, you know, but just for me personally, even 16-track is too much for me, if I have a 16-track tape machine, I mean, to me, the big difference that I always bring up is, like, if you're, you think of it as a, as a musician, as a singer or a, mm-hmm. an instrumentalist or something, if somebody's playing a saxophone solo and I'm doing an overdub on a record, I can still do an overdub and put them on their own track. I don't have to necessarily get it right live. Right. But even doing the overdub, they do a solo and we're like, yo, that was smoking, that was really great. And they say, oh, 
that's great, man, can I do one more? It's like, well, yeah, but you're going to record over that. So it puts them in a different situation. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If it's, I have a 16-track machine, I can say, well, I'll put you on another track. The 8-track machine is like, oh, I don't have another track. So you could do another solo, but whatever you just did is gone forever. Right. So right now, you got to play the, the best thing. That's, whatever you play is going to be on the record. And as a musician, that feels totally different than being on a computer or even a 16-track tape machine. Be like, yeah, we'll do another one. Sure. We know we got the other one, so this is just for fun. And if, you, if it's better, it's better. If it's not, it's not. It's like, no, man, that's just got to be better. You know what I mean? Because that's what's, that's what's going to be there. You know? And that's like being live. You know? that brings, it brings a different energy, I think, to the recording. And it puts the musicians in a cooler place. You know? it's just, and it's, it's more fun. You know what I mean? So I think, again, it's, like, it's really the process about it. You know? like, to me, the computer has the opposite advantage, which is if somebody can't play, I can go on a computer and fix their rhythm, I can fix their tuning, mm -hmm. I can get the one course they did right and copy and paste it really easy. I can right. do that on a tape machine, but it's going to be hard. Yeah. It's going to take me all day to do that. Computer, it's easy to do that. So I guess the thing is, if I had a bunch of crappy musicians, I would definitely uh, prefer a computer. You right. know? And there's definitely people I work with that I use a computer for because um, just process-wise, it makes sense for them, you know, doing certain vocals or putting certain things together, you know, or things that can't be done live or during the pandemic, things that had to be done remotely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it, computers are amazing, you know. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, most of the time we use the 8-track tape. It's fun, you know. I do like the way of elevating that, like the old school where it was like, mm -hmm. you're going to lay it down and it's going to be legit. Yeah, it's going to happen. Like, what's the people in the room are making the record, you know what I mean? And if they don't play it right, they got to do it again, you know. Right. And if I don't notice that they played it wrong, then that's on me. You know what I mean? Like, right. everybody has a, has a, a serious role. Like the engineer has to make sure the sounds are right. And you know, you're putting the drums are all. It's gonna. It's one track of drums. It's not, you know, eight tracks or four tracks or even three tracks or two tracks. It's one track of drums. You know. So even if it's one or two or three mics or whatever it is, they have to be mixed. It has to sound right because what's right. on the tape that's the sound of the record. You know what exactly. I mean? And it's not like that's necessarily harder. It's just sooner. At some point, somebody's got to figure out how the record sounds goes, you know what I mean? Why not do it in the studio? Why not do it with the drummers there, you know what I mean? Yeah, it makes the rest of it yeah. easier. You've thought about yeah. everything ahead and, of time. And, and, you know, it also changes your approach to a lot of problems, like the hi-hat's too loud. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, somebody else might say, oh, we'll turn down the hi-hat mic. Okay, well, we don't have a hi-hat mic. We got a mic over here, we got a mic over there. We don't have a hi-hat mic. Right. Um, hi-hat's too loud. Let's try moving the mic further away from it. Let's try putting a piece of carpet in front of it. Let's try putting a t-shirt on it. Let's try putting tape on it. Let's try asking the drummer not to hit it so damn hard. You know right. what I mean? Like, let's try all these other things, you know, that, that have to do with what's happening in the room and the acoustics in the room and the musician and the way it's being played. And it's just a different, it just puts you in a different mindset, you know? Like the way you're making, when you're making a record, you're making it, you know, with a bunch of musicians. It's more, way more fun, you know? Yeah, yeah, it has that spontaneity to it, and yeah. everyone's listening to each I always, other. I think that now when you go into a coffee shop and you see somebody with headphones on a computer, you always think, what are they working on? Like, they could be making the next, they could be mixing a Justin Timberlake record for all you know. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, they could be doing anything. Like, that's, that's how that music is now. It's, it's, it's basically anybody could do it pretty much by themselves, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, it's a lot of people working in isolation doing them, you know? And I, I think that's, it's like, even for kids and stuff now that I, you know, see, try and get kids to play instruments and stuff, 
I'm always trying to talk to him about that. Like, man, get with your friends and jam. You know what I mean? Like, it's not the same as like making beats is cool. Like, I don't have a problem with it, and it's right. cool. Get in your room, make your beats. But like, there's nothing more fun than playing music with other people. You know what I mean? It's just like that's the that's the funnest part of making music. You know? So why like amputate that from the process? You know? It doesn't make sense. You know? Yeah, like the energy of the people in the room. By the way, I don't even remember if you asked me a question. At this point, I'm just rambling. <laughs> no, it's quite all right. So as we, we pick it up, I wanted to go back a little bit to your actual origins. You're from Riverside. We're in Riverside now. Yeah, and so how did you get into music originally? Well, um, I got into music like everybody else, man. Listen to records, listen to the radio. You know, my parents were, were kind of hippies, so... You know, they would listen to a lot of Motown and Beatles and the Rolling Stones and James Brown and Aretha Franklin. You know, I was always hearing that stuff growing up. Great and I got pulled into it. At some point when I was probably like, I don't know how old I was, 11 or 12, um, I got into blues records somehow. And I don't recall exactly how this happened. I had an uncle that liked to play, you know, guitar and was into blues and stuff, so maybe it was that. But um, I remember selling a bunch of my toys at a garage sale and bought my first record player and speakers and everything from the Costco, you know, or the Price Club at the time. Okay. You know, from the Price Club, I got myself these big ass speakers, sold all my little toys, you know, I was real happy about it. And then I started buying these blues records. So that's kind of where I first really started getting into music. And then I was started playing drums. My sister actually taught me like a little guitar and piano, like theory. My, my sister, who's, uh, you know, uh, doesn't do anything with music anymore. You know, she's a commissioner now. You know, she's a public defender for a long time. But she was the one who taught me that. She knew how to play piano and guitar, and she taught me music theory and stuff. So she gave me a real good start, and I took drum lessons, so I learned about rhythm, you know. And I used to play drums in high school, like in crappy little blues bands and stuff. Me and my friends would, would play, you know, whatever wild thing for an hour and a half at right. a house party or whatever, you know. Um, the first wild thing, not the tone local one, just so yeah, we're yeah, clear. Of course. <laughs> Basically, Louie Louie, we play, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, so that's how I got into music. Like, you know, just playing playing with my friends and at parties and stuff, and mostly playing drums. And then I moved to New York, and I met a guy who I recently reconnected with, my friend Rick Getz, and, we, and my friend Luke O'Malley, and we started like a little funk band, you know, Dynomatic. We had our little college funk band. I was playing drums. <laughs> and then when Dynomatic split up, I got real into I started getting more into soul records. And at the time, I think in high school, actually, my sister's roommate got hit me to, like, James Brown's Funky People and the Meters and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. And this was, like, in the early 90s, so I got real heavy into that. And then started buying, like, when I moved to New York, I started buying, like, all these compilations of these rare funk cuts and all that. And I got really into funk records in the 90s, you know. And one of the biggest compilations was Pure Records, this French company that had this super rare, really sick punk compilations and reissues and stuff. And that guy was, the guy who ran that was Philip Lehman, who ended up moving to New York. Mm. And we got introduced through mutual friends who wanted to make new records. So that's kind of how I started making records. It all came through that. So, I mean, that's, the, that's basically the scoop of it, you know. So then you worked with so many people, Amy and Sharon and Lee and... Charles mm -hmm. Bradley and Antti Ballas and Buddha's mm -hmm. band, all these, all these greats and so many more. Is there like an interesting story or something you remember as like a standout of one of those working together with, with groups? Oh man, they're all great stories, man. I've got great stories about all those people, you know. And Naomi Shelton, who, who passed away. Of course. Right. Companies going in, in Cliff Driver and stuff. We have a lot, yeah, we lost a lot in the last few years, but I've got great stories about all those people. Let's talk about Naomi. I come from the gospel idiom years ago. Oh, yeah? Having that on something like Adaptone, bringing something like that to the forefront. Did, in did you, you start playing gospel and stuff? You started Yeah, I grew up in the churches stuff. in Washington, D.C. So oh, I did a ton of gospel. Okay. And then I did gospel choir at Berkeley. Baptist churches? Music, Baptist churches, Methodist yeah. churches, Pentecostal churches. Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, I mean, some of the organ players and, ba- and bass players, I did a gospel record called The, the Gospel According to Cliff Beach in 2017, and oh, so man, I went back to a church out. in Baltimore, and, mm-hmm. and, and we recorded drums and bass. I remember I had never met the drummer before, this guy named Spider, and you just see him. Sounds like, like a look- drummer named Spider. Right? I'm just looking mm-hmm. at him, and he's like playing a demo for him. He's like, okay, okay, I got you, I got mm-hmm. you. And it's yeah. like all these ghost notes, like he's just ready to go. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just think there's, there's such a purity of that, music and so having someone like Naomi Shelton I thought was very cool for Adaptone because you know some people feel like it's just for the church but this mm-hmm. like takes the church to the people which I think is great. Yeah you know it's interesting when we first like I, I met Naomi and, and Cliff through Fred Thomas who was James Brown's bass player. Oh yeah. Right, and Fred, uh, I had my, fr- my friend Rick Getz who was working at Atlantic at the time told me man I got this demo from Fred Thomas, and he's like, nobody here cares, but I know you'd want to hear. I was like, are you kidding me? So he brings me this 12-inch that Fred Thomas had brought to Atlantic or something, and I reached out, connected with Fred Thomas, and he wanted me to go see him at this gig at Nell's, and I went in there, and um, he was playing and singing, and Naomi was singing too, and Cliff Driver was in the band. So that's how I met those guys. And then um, we recorded a couple, like, Funk 45s of them on Desco. And then shortly after that, Fred Thomas went back on the road with James Brown. Mm-hmm. This is like the late 90s. Cliff Driver, uh, hit me up to come play bass to sub in for Fred Thomas in, on their gospel gigs. So I started going to like like East New York and the Bronx. Sometimes we go out to Allentown, stuff like this, with Naomi Shelton, the gospel queens. Nice. You know? And um, doing gospel gigs with him and Sister Blue and a couple other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and I, I didn't know nothing about that. You know, I, I knew a little bit, you know, and I played, you know, I, I could play, and, but like, you know, I grew up not just Jewish, but in a family out here, you know, like a fiercely you know, atheist family that's, you know, against organized religion and stuff like this. But when I moved to New York, I started meeting a lot of, I, you know, something actually, I, I mean, I hate to say this, and now to, now I know a lot of people like this out here, but growing up, I didn't meet a lot of, this may be going way off the rails too, but I didn't meet a lot of Christians out here that were Christian in that sense of, uh, where Christianity meant to them understanding and kindness and generosity and acceptance mm-hmm. and help. You know, and I know a lot of people like that now, but as a kid, you know, church was always kind of this oppressive thing, and a lot of people that were pointing at other people and giving other people a hard time to me, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And when I moved to New York and I started hanging out with, like, Naomi and these guys, I met people that really used, like, religion for them was really an inspiration to be better people and nice people and do good things. Sure. And they were good, beautiful people. And um, I also, though I, you know, connected to it through the records for years, you know, to be in these Baptist churches with um, these gospel singers that were, um, you know, where it was so close to their heart, you know, this, the, and they were just, and the people were, you know, you know how it is. People get crazy in there. You can't explain, but yeah. people, it would get crazy, you know. Yeah, and it, and it, and it doesn't have no time limit. I'll know? tell you a story. I tell a story before, but it's a great story, man. I was in, I think it was Allentown, with Cliff Driver and Naomi, and this is when I first started doing shows with them. And they brought me to some Baptist church for some Saturday program out there. And we go in there, and you know how the deal is, every group, get, they bring in a bunch of groups, every group gets like three songs. Right. And, and somehow, the third song, somebody always catches the spirit, and you end up playing an extra 20 minutes on somebody else's time, you know? Exactly. But anyway, so we're, we're playing, we're on the third, you know, we're playing our third song, and Naomi's singing, all of a sudden, you know, some lady in the front row starts going bananas and shaking, and and things start going nuts, and, you know, and we're kind of in the vamp out of the song, you know, and I'm, and I'm playing doom, 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 and Cliff Driver, who's blind, you know, I, I, I'm leaning over, I'm just always be next to him trying to figure out where he's going next, because mm-hmm. you'd have to actually watch his hand to figure it out, you know, so I'd be right next to him, and I lean over, I'd be like, Cliff, man, this lady's, 
And she, her eyes rolled back in her head, and she said, just keep playing it, boy. Dum, 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 dum. And he says, he says, Cliff, man, she's on the ground, you know, this preacher's over, her tongue's wagging out. I don't know what's going on, people are going crazy. Just keep playing, I'm going, dum, dum, dum. You know, and I'm, you know, I'm this young Jewish kid that never had a lot of experience in a Baptist church, you know, so I'm freaked out, you know, and, and definitely I'm the only white person, not just definitely the only Jew, for sure, you know. And, um, and then a guy from the local choir leans over to me, and everything's really intense. Everybody's sweating, and it's intense. Dun, 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 we're playing faster and faster, you know. And a guy from the choir leans over, and he gets right over my face, and he says, Brother, do you know what Jesus did for me today? And I'm going, dum, 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 and I go, No, no, brother, what did Jesus do for you today? And he's like, oh, No, brother, do you know what Jesus did for me today? I'm going, dum, 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 no, brother, what did Jesus do for me? <laughs> and it's just getting more exasperated, and I'm like, Man, the jig is up, like... I don't know the password, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, they, I've found out, you know? They're gonna <laughs> throw me at it, you know? And finally, he kind of gets exasperated, he leans over to Cliff, and he says, Brother Driver, you, you know what Jesus did for me today? Brother Driver says, sure, sure. What Jesus did for me today? E flat. So apparently, <laughs> I didn't know, but it was just a song. But, um, after that, after that, it was mellow. But I had a lot of great stories touring with those guys, man, with Naomi, with Naomi and Cliff. Cliff was a character, man. He was really a character. And they only two men. They were amazing. Yeah, they really are true believers, and you hear that fervent. Yeah, and we worked on their first record, to your point. Like, their first record, Cliff had this idea. He wanted to do message songs, mm -hmm. you know, which is a weird term. But basically, you know, you could say some Curtis Mayfield kind of stuff, some kind of righteous and stuff. But really, a lot of it was like staple singers kind of stuff, which sure. is like, you're doing gospel, but you're not really naming Jesus. You're still just kind of more like, let's let's all rise up, you know. So he had me go back through all these gospel tunes that we would do with Naomi and the gospel set, like popular, like Thomas Dorsey, Sam Cooke, like famous gospel tunes, like Hem of His Garment and stuff like that. And he had me go back through these tunes and rewrite the words to make them secular. Mm -hmm. And this is what he wanted me to do, you know, and I was doing it. And, you know, obviously Ray Charles did that. Right. Wilson Pickett did that. Sure. There's a there's a long tradition of that, right? So I was like, all right, you know, you, you know, this woman. So I would do it, and then we'd go in the studio, and the women would just not sing it right, man. Like they would sing it, but it just wouldn't have that feeling. And then we would go play the gig, and they'd be singing about Jesus, and they'd just be singing their hearts out, you know, yeah. and it would just go off. Yeah. And finally, I was like, Cliff, man, just let them sing about it. You just let them sing it, you know. And um, so we started just letting them record this, the gospel tunes, you know, and it was so much better. They sang so much better, you know. I was like, man, they. They love Jesus. Let them sing about what they love. You know what I mean? Like, don't change it. And then I'd write a lot of songs for Naomi that were kind of message songs. I'd write these kind of, you know, long, I, I, I'll Take the Long Road or Rise Up or these kind of songs that were, you know. Um, and they always, always to a, to a song, every song I ever wrote for Naomi came out of something she said to you. Because you'd have a conversation with her. And, man, even after I moved out here, Naomi's just, she's the person that calls you, not just on your birthday. She calls me on my wife's birthday, my kid's birthday. She'd call me on Groundhog's Day. Mm -hmm. And not just me, Nydia, every, she knew everybody. She was just like, she was like an aunt or something to everybody, man. She was just very sweet. So she'd talk to you on the phone. And first, it would always start as a regular conversation. But by the end of it, she'd always be preaching, you know. And you'd, the only thing you'd get in was, mm, yeah, mm-hmm, mm, that's true, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, and she'd be saying, you know, but it'd be amazing. She'd be saying these amazing things, and I would always catch something that she said, and I'd always write it down, and then come down back to her a couple months later with a song, and she would be, you know, she would love these songs, and it was always because it came out of, it was always, you know, her sentiments, you know. I'd always yeah. try to write something that was, you know, coming from from her, really, you know. So. For sure. Now we spoke a lot about that tone of your success. As we start to wrap up, I wanted to talk about Pembroke and what you're doing now. I know you're doing a lot of lowrider music. Mm -hmm. You're working with some great groups, so tell us Yeah, man, Penrose is actually really amazing. It's very different from, Daptone to me was really like me and my buddies 
manifested that. That was like us and our friends and our records and our gigs, you know. Penrose is different, man. Penrose is like, I mean, there's always been this scene out here, you know, this kind of lowrider scene out here, mostly Chicano scene, but not completely, but that's mm-hmm. that's been affectionate towards soul records, you know, sure. since the 60s, and they never stopped loving them, you know, and the lowriders and and, um, and all this stuff, and it's it's been a scene that whole time. But it's these last handful of years, it's kind of blown up with the younger generation where all of a sudden there's these young bands that are playing this kind of music and they're inspired by this music and there's a real scene, you know. I mean you see it, but it's not just it's not just DJs anymore, it's bands and it's musicians. Right. So, I mean to me, I was out here anyway, like I grew up in Riverside and I'm back been back in Riverside for a dozen years now and, and um so this is home for me and and I, and it, when it started Penrose, for me, it was really just like a cool kind of side project to support the local scene and support these kids and because I liked what they were doing. Right. And I felt like from all our work in Daptone and all the, you know, all the work that we put in over the years, now we have a lot of things, you know what I mean? We have, we have an audience, we have people that will come listen to what we're doing, we have, you know, um, we have the, the um, resources to make records, we know how to make records, we have a studio, we know, how to, we know how to promote records, like we know how to do these things, you know, we have these pieces in place. So to me, it, it was a very different thing where I felt like Daptone's like we had nothing and we built it all from scratch and it was all for us. Now I kind of feel like, man, I have all this stuff going for us, let's reach out to this younger generation and, you know, let me take a back seat in a way to, to their vision and their music mm-hmm. and let their voices come out. And I'm definitely very conscious of that with the Penrose stuff. I'm not hands off. I mean, I'll never shut up. I always got a lot of opinions and stuff. But right. I'm very conscious of trying to be a lot more hands off than I was with, with Daptone stuff. It's much more like, um, I think I have a much more heavy handed approach to that. Whereas the Penrose stuff, it's much more about kind of trying to help these kids and guide them and if I have an idea or something that can help them with an arrangement or a lyric or a sound or something, I, I, I try to help them out. But in the most part, I, I'm very conscious that this is their music and their scene, and I'm just trying to be a supportive part of that. And it's been exploding, man, like this last year or two. Um, and we just last week did these Penrose showcases um, in, in uh, L.A. and San Diego and out at Papier Harry's in the desert and stuff. Oh, I love Papier and, Man, it's like the... the the response is crazy, man. The response is crazy, and, and um, can imagine. you know these sacred souls are kind of blowing up. We just finished their album, but Los Yesterdays and the Altons and the Sinceres and Vicky Tafoya. Um, man, the Vicky Tafoya shows this week were really amazing too. Man, she's really, I think, an amazing singer and kind of starting to find. Even though she's been singing for a long time, I think she's just kind of trying to find her stride as far as what she wants to do. That's but cool. man, we have a lot of great talent right now. We're working on so many records. It's really fun. A good time. That's awesome. So as we start to wrap up, I have a few rapid fire questions that I want to ask you. Just kind of free association right off the dome. What's next musically for you? Well, working with uh, trying to get this Lee Fields album done. Um, we got this guy Jalen Angonda that that's working with some some producers. Uh, 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 Vincent and and Mike out in New York are, are working on his stuff. That's going to mm-hmm. be great. We got a lot more Penrose stuff going. Cool. Um, a lot of music coming. We have a lot of great things coming. It's a cat named Napoleon from from um, Flint, Michigan, that we did a track on. I'm trying to do some more stuff from Napoleon. He's a great singer. So we have we have our hands full right now. We have a lot of great talent. It's it's kind of exciting, you know. It's very exciting. So, we look forward to hearing that. Keeping yeah. the conversation going. So then, what mm-hmm. advice would you give a newbie starting out in music today? Um, starting out doing what, like as musician or like a, somebody trying to start a record label or something? Either one. Either one. What advice I give? Well, I'll tell you this. The Guitar Center 
if you buy stuff from the Guitar Center, they have pretty much a no questions asked return policy, like in 30 days. Good to know. And I think for struggling musicians, if you're trying to make a record, yo, take them up on that. It's like a rental house, man. Go over there, get the mics you need, get the equipment you need, play the gig, make the session, bring the stuff back, man. You know what I mean? Like this is, I mean, that's real talk. Like that's that's what's going to help people make records. Use whatever you got, you know. Use what you got to get it. Don't don't get sucked into gear or anything else. I got a lot of cool gear, but I also got a bunch of money because I've been making records for 25 years. But I started out, man. Like use whatever you want. The, the gear is fun and it's cool, but that's not what makes the record. The people make the records. Mm -hmm. And if you have GarageBand and an SM57. And a good idea, you can make a great record. Much better than if you have a beautiful tape machine and a bunch of tube gear and fancy vintage Neumann microphones right. and you got some lame-ass musicians. You know what I mean? Definitely so true. That's, that's my best advice. And, and the other thing, which is, I mean, not to go too deep on it, but I think, like, I think people have a messed up idea of success at this point. I think people define success in weird ways. I think you have to define success for yourself. And if that means money or fame or selling a lot of records, that's fine. If it means making a good record, that's fine. But just be honest with yourself about what success is and then try to do that thing, you know? Because mm -hmm. if you're trying to make a good record, don't be surprised if you don't get famous or don't make money because that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to make a good record. And if you do make a good record and you succeed, you should be fucking proud of it. And that may not pay your rent, but that's, that's what you're trying to do. If you're trying to make money, then go make money. And I don't think music is a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't. I think if you're trying to make money, there's a million things you could do and music is not a good one, you know? Like, that's just not a good way to make music, I mean, to make money. It's a good way to make, you know, music and do something good, you know? Like, I think if you have, you got a song in your heart, you gotta sing it, you know? But, like, I think people who go trying to make records, chasing fortune and fame, it, I, mean, I don't even have any advice for those people, just don't do it. So you're wasting your time, you know what I mean? Like, you're better off just trying to get into the NBA or something, yeah. you know? Like, it's, just, it's not just music. I mean, in general, in this country, there's a myth, I think, that if you work hard and you do the right thing and you're talented that you're going to get money there's no correlation between money and those things let's be honest like yeah if you if you work hard that can help you you know but like if you look at people who have a lot of money it's not a bunch of hard working talented people mm -hmm. you know what i mean and i think that like being able to attach those things in your mind can help and i think particularly for musicians if you can detach in your mind like making money or being famous or be on some magazine or whatever it is you 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 know detach that from making good records or playing good music you're you know then then i think you have a much more successful time and i i'm able to do some of both mm -hmm. but honestly the things that make me money are rarely the things that my heart's that in right. and the things my heart's in often don't make money sometimes you're lucky it's both but i don't get heartbroken that there's not a correlation there you know what i mean happy to make money when i can happy to make music when i can but i don't try to equate it and i think a lot of people get um, frustrated or um, uh, you know put off when those things don't follow but they don't you know that's the sad truth you know like I think you should work hard and I, I definitely am I work real hard on music I work really hard I'm not I think a lot of times I get credit for being more talented than I am just because I do a lot of stuff that's not good but nobody ever hears it you know what mm -hmm. I mean like I just keep doing it over and over and over again and then get the best part of it and put that out there people are like oh you're really good at that but they don't realize that most of what I did was pretty cheesy and messed up and, you know what I mean like I do a lot of stuff that's just not that good you know so I mean I think that's that's the other thing I tell people work hard only put the best stuff out mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to throw throw away stuff that you worked on really hard. Stay up all night working on something, and then in the morning be going, man, it's better if we just don't even if we just mute that track, you know? Like that's that's a key. You got to keep your ego out of it, you know. I mean, 
I guess it's all my sage advice I can think of. Right I now. think that's great advice and a great perspective. Now, what do you want your musical legacy to be? Not that it's going to happen at the end of tomorrow, but the next 48 Man, years. I just, I just want, like, you know, a record that I made to be somebody's jam. Doesn't even have to be a lot of records, doesn't even have to be a lot of somebody's. Mm -hmm. But if one record I made, somebody's like, that's my jam, that's it. That's all I really want. Because I feel like that, it, that way I'm alleviating a little bit of suffering in the universe. If somebody just says, man, that one record that, that you worked on, that was my jam. I didn't even need to hear it. I just want to know that somewhere out there somebody dug something. That's, that's it, man. That's really rewarding. It really is. And even, like, you probably experience this. You're on a gig or something, and somebody comes to you after a gig and says, man, I was having a terrible week, and my, my boyfriend dumped me, and I lost my job, and I had a flat tire, and I didn't want to come tonight, and my cousin dragged me down, and, man, after the show, I, I got a whole new lease on life. I feel great. You know, you really lifted me up. I danced, I cried, I sweated. You know, I sweat. It's a past tense, sweat. You know, either way, like that to me is this, that's what's rewarding. That's what I want to leave behind. You know what I mean? It is. You know, that, and I want my kids to grow up to be nice people. You know, that's it. That's all I got. That's a great legacy for sure. And so, mm -hmm. where should people go first to listen to your discography? Like, if they know nothing about Gabe Roth as a musician, as a producer? Um, where do you go? What should they listen to first? What you listen to first? Oh, jeez, I don't know. I don't know. I guess it depends on what you're into. That Son of Star record's pretty good. It is. Hajad, you know, I think I think it wheel. depends on what you're into. I mean, I think there's like, I, there's some like there's an Antibalas record, there's self-titled records, the record I'm really proud of. Naomi Shelton's record, the record I'm really proud of. <clears throat> the Como Mamas did a record, Move Upstairs. It's mm -hmm. a really good record. You know, all the Sharon records, the Charles records. James Hunter's records, the last couple of James Hunter records have been great. Man, I don't know. I, I, you know, whatever, whatever, I don't know where to tell somebody to start, but I appreciate that anybody's out there looking. Right. You know, check, yeah. out, check out any of it, man. Yeah. Oh, they should. And yeah. because everything's on streaming, they can mm -hmm. hear everything now. Sure, you can so hear So then, it. where can people find you? Where should they go? Social media, online, where should they I go? I personally am not on social media. Okay. But Daptone is and Penrose is okay. on all that stuff. Um, and we have a website, daptonerecords.com. You know, and uh, if you're in Riverside, I'm not that hard to find, <laughs> you know. But, um, yeah, man, I, I, I think it's pretty, that's one, one nice thing about these days, uh, the internet and everything, you can find anything whenever you want it, right? So if you look up Daptone or Penrose, you're going to find a lot of music anywhere you look, you know, Spotify or YouTube or just, you know, daptonerecords.com, whatever. So. I'm not. I'm not great plugging stuff. I'm That's quite all right. I mean, people know Daptone. They can find it yeah. now. Penrose, which is up and coming over the last couple of years, you guys yeah. are putting yeah. out some more stuff. Yeah, Penrose stuff is, is coming up. Well, we look forward to that for sure. Well, Gabe, it was a pleasure having you on. Oh, the Deep pleasure Cruise. is mine. Thank you. It was a real, real pleasure. At home interviews. We're gonna have this all up. All the links. Get it back to you so that we can promote it. And we want to keep the conversation going with you and hear how things are going. Great, man. Thank you. We'll talk soon. We'll Take care, soon. everyone.